And now let's turn to a new program in place of Sadia Usmani's On the Menu, which uh, will no doubt be missed. And you can also visit our past episodes on the Radio 3 archive. Right now, it's time for The Week on 3. Good morning and welcome to The Week on 3 with me, Noreen Mayer. It's great to bring back The Week on 3 for you and it's great to be able to review some of the more fun and interesting parts of our weekday shows. Now, it's no secret that we have a wide range of programs, so you can't be expected to catch them all. So do allow me to select a few of these moments for you right now. We have quite a mix for you on today's show, from ways to create a better future for ethnic minorities, to hearing about a local young budding musician, and even the effects of the pandemic on musicians here in Hong Kong. So let's start today's program with the really talented 15-year-old Harry Nichols, who joined Phil Whelan on Tuesday's Morning Brew to unveil his first single, and they talked about how puberty has changed his voice. A few months ago, my voice wasn't here. Like, up until around February, my voice was still broken. So just to bring you back a bit, around the end of 2018, I lost my voice okay. for a whole year, which is weird because normally a voice... Some some voice breaks just happen, you know. Yours, yours had quite a workout though before my, that, yeah, right? Yeah. My, I feel uh, the usage of my voice kind of caught up to me, oh, well. and it took me one whole year to find my voice again. Good. But uh, yeah, anyway, I settled from a high soprano now to a, <laughs> a high baritone, which yeah. is quite a quite quite a change. Yeah. But um, yeah. So when when I wrote my song, yeah, I had just you know found my voice. And this song was kind of the start of me trying to find what kind of music I would try to, you know, to write. And of course, you know, my first song isn't going to be, you know, perfect. It's not going to be. But it's, I don't know. it's significant, though. I mean, who, who, how can you quantify this? I mean, it made you happy and it's your first song. So who cares? I mean, yeah, I, I am happy with it. But as any musician can say, no, no one can any. No one can really be happy with their song. There's always, you know, one thing that you're like, oh, I don't like that. I want to change that. That just happens over and over again. I, th I think that's one of the skills that people often talk about. I mean, it's wonderful mastering and remastering and doing all this kind of stuff. But I think the real skill is being able to literally stand up and say, right, that's done. That must be tough. Yeah, that's that's yeah. It's a, it's a real struggle to step away from it because you just perfectionist. Should we should, should we have a listen? Yeah and then talk yep. a bit more. Uh, not the happiest song in the world. I hope it's not so deep and meaningful. No, it's uh, it's, it's more mellow than it is um, being... You can't really dance to it. It's more right. mellow. Yeah. Right. Let's play now, for the first time, certainly on Radio 3, Harry Nichols' Can't Stand Myself. Let's give it a crack. Congratulations in advance. Stand my 
the very first release of my guest, Harry Nichols, Can't Stand Myself. Harry, that's absolutely brilliant. Well done, mate. And it's completely, apart from the drums, a one-man band, right? Yes, it is. Well, it is a one-man band. Um, I... Well, I took part in writing the drums, but I didn't have the um, I didn't have the skills, or you know, the uh, my my teacher helped me out with um, with producing and you know the uh, the writing of the drum track because I'm not very experienced with that and it didn't sound too great. You can't do everything, and I think it's always good to get the right man for the right job if you think you're not that person. Brilliant, uh, like the whole production vibe, mise en scène, whatever you want to call it. So it's not really a sad song at all, is it? Oh uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the song is whatever whatever it means to someone else, you know. It can be a sad song to someone else or a happy song to yeah, another. you got it. Well, join us on Facebook Live if you want to say hello to Harry. We're at Morning Brew, the same place as usual. Michael Lance kicks in. Hey, Harry, what's up? And now he's going to start plucking his country programme, I'm sure. How do you know Michael? Oh, well, um, I met him a few weeks back at my... Uh, so the, the Vocal Academy, American Vocal Studio okay. that I go to, which helps me with my... Groovy voice. In my vocal production. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he's part of the. Um, he's part of the the group there, uh-huh. and well, I got to meet him a few a few uh, few weeks ago. This is interesting, right? Because bringing up the subject of going to find that bit of your voice, what have you had to forget or kind of put um on ice from your previous voice? Granted, you were a little boy then, but what, what what's the change? Well. Um, what I've began to find out is that my uh, my brain is kind of the one thing that's messing with you know, my voice. Because um, for my whole life, until about a few months ago, I've been so used to you know using different you know functions and parts of my voice to sing higher. Yes. For example, like my head voice. Yeah. And have you um, still got a head voice? Yeah, yeah, I, okay. I do, but it's um, it's where my old chest voice used to be. So it's just sense. it's it's messing with me. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a struggle, but you know, working towards it. Yeah, of course you are. I like the attitude, though. I mean, again, that's obviously because you've been taught really well. You're like, we do this gently, then we add this, then we take care. You're not like, I want it and I want it now. Would that be your advice to people? Yeah, just take things very slowly. I mean, things don't just come overnight. Um, they can go away overnight, certainly. Yeah. But in order to build something back up, it takes time and it takes precision. And that was Harry Nichols, a singer-songwriter and former Vienna Boys Choir member who spoke to Phil on Tuesday's Morning Brew. Music is certainly good for the soul, but during the pandemic, many creators of music and musicians have really taken a hit from the closures of performance venues. Chris B., the founder of Underground Hong Kong, spoke to Hugh Chiverton on Wednesday's Backchat about a survey she's done on the impact of COVID on the livelihood of musicians in the city. We'd heard about some musicians really struggling, like being evicted, so, and we guessed there were about 50 musicians, like full-time working ones. So I thought, well, let's just do a survey. Let's find out. Let's ask, and uh, we'll make it anonymous because then people are more likely to put the truth hopefully. And uh, we had 646 replies. 93% of them are Hong Kong permanent residents. Um, It was 62% do music full time and like for over five years, right? So we're talking a few hundred musicians who fall into that category. And um, and quite sadly, we found out like something like 3% are homeless and 5% are being evicted. And that was at the beginning of August. 
And now, up to today, it's been 161 days uh, with a, uh, that live music has been banned with a 27-day window opportunity um, in June to July when they could play. But, you know, working musicians don't necessarily have a gig every day, right? So... Yeah, it's quite tough. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, that, so we did the survey and we were really quite surprised. Even the musicians themselves were surprised. Like a lot of, you know, like musicians were like, you had 600 replies. So I think, um, and then, then the next step was to bring that awareness to the media, which we did um, through, you know, RTHK, South China Morning Post, uh, Harbour Times. And then we thought, you know, maybe the people in the government don't know because the musicians themselves are surprised, right? So then um, a few of us, we worked together on an email and I sent an email to each of the legislative councillors because um, I also contacted Mr. Bernard Chan um, from Exco because he's in culture. He did say he would pass on the message, um, but I just felt like, you know, like let's let's get it out there that these are self-employed, you know, full-time musicians who are not, permitted to work they cannot work are, are, are they are they eligible to get any money There's, there is a i should say this is kind of coincides with an effort by uh, marfun kwok I, yes. I think and others to help some of the performing uh, associations including chinese opera uh, but uh, can they get money from the government uh, well the, the thing was the they had a self-employment thing right in the ess for seven thousand five hundred um but you yeah. have to have the right mpf which was for self-employed so a lot of these musicians don't have the correct MPF. So, you know, most of them didn't get it. Um, I actually saw Mr. Ma um, on Monday. Wow, that was just yesterday. It seems like a long time ago. Um, day before oh, yesterday. the day before yesterday. Yeah. Okay. And he mentioned this. And he also mentioned he um, is thinking of proposing that IFPI, the International Federation of, um, you know, like it's... Phonographic. Like it's, yeah, phonographic. Yeah to distribute to its members but out of the working musicians i'd say maybe 10 percent are members because they deal with like the big names you know like your alan tam and your you know sandy concerts um so and, and that's what's become apparent from doing the survey and talking to lots and lots of musicians there's many different communities and organizations and unions and societies and each each one is kind of working independent from the others. Although I, when I was doing the survey, I contacted everyone and I've kept everyone as much as I can updated with the information, the data we found, who we've been talking to, what we're trying to suggest. Um, I think it, that that's part of the problem. So the government has to work out who to, if they were going to help fund, you know, support in some way these self-employed musicians, how are they going to do it? So the politicians would ask us at these meetings, what suggestions, what proposals, do we have a concrete proposal? So in the end, we gave one to Mr. Mafung Kwok yesterday, suggesting a similar method to like um, they've been doing for the massage parlours, basically doing through the companies um, that hire and, um, you know, musicians for events. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a question about the, about the demographics of, of the working musicians in Hong Kong, I guess. What are they playing? Where are they playing? Um, I assume like these, these aren't like concert musicians playing at the, at the Hong Kong Phil, although I assume these are part of this group too. I think, yeah, there's some of them. Yeah. There's um, people who play at um, weddings and functions, mm -hmm. at wine and dine, that sort of big public events to private events. Uh, there's pe um, musicians who play at smaller venues, like you get the live music venues in Taigun, Fringe Club, um, and Lang Kwai Fong, Wan Chai, and all over Hong Kong bars that have live music. Um, yeah, 
and I we because there's been some classical musicians in our group as well, and they also yeah un- unless they're with a a big you know <laughs> arts development council approved because that was another thing the arts development council got a lot of funding. But most of these musicians couldn't tap into it because they weren't performing at a government venue. Is that the problem that the, you're talking about? Kind of musicians who are freelancers, who are yes, who are not sort of members of associ- recognised associations and so on. Yes, and if they're on the fringes or whatever, they they're, they're losing out. Yeah. What would what would you? How can the government help those people though? Uh, the government, I mean, could. uh, make it um, easier for them to be recognised as self-employed because, I mean, these musicians... Like, for a lot of companies, even like the underground, you know, if we're working on corporate events or big events, we will hire a band and there's agreements and payments made. There's there's all proof. There's a paper trail. So if the government could let, you know, companies apply on behalf of the musicians and then, fingers crossed, that the companies will pass it on to the musicians... (laughs) Um, that's because, because as I said, it's so it's so fractured with so many different unions and associations. And that was Chris B, the founder from Underground Hong Kong, on Wednesday's back chat. Finally, I'd like to end today's program on a discussion that I did on Monday's One Two Three show. We talked about how to create a better future for ethnic minorities with Phyllis Cheung, the executive director of Hong Kong Unison, and Pooja Kapai, an associate professor at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. Here, Pooja talks about the racial hierarchy pyramid. The world is sort of so um, focused on the narrative in the U.S. and how racism plays out in the U.S. that we assume that naturally black would be at the bottom. But in the pyramid in Hong Kong, black is in the middle and brown is at the bottom. And so that requires that we rethink. No, 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 that's fine. It's it's a very common assumption, right? And I think it's completely misplaced because we're, uh, you know, we, we tend to think that racism everywhere manifests in the same way. But what we're seeing in Hong Kong is that we don't have the same kind of entrenched colorism-based racism, you know, in Hong Kong. And the second thing is, you know, this is also an anomaly. People tend to think that race equals color, but actually the two are not the same. There are some interlinkages there which do result in poor treatment, uh, you know, the darker your skin color. And India is a classic example of how those divisions play out in terms of, you know, white uh, and black. Um, But I think in Hong Kong, something else is at play, which shows that it's not just skin color and it's not necessarily skin color, but race is manifested in various forms where your socioeconomic status or other aspects of how you present yourself, your language are taken to be proxies of your race and then you're marginalized in that way. That's the first thing that I think is really important. Uh, And the second thing I think to bear in mind is, you know, when we say that the government has not had ethnic minorities in mind when they're crafting policies, again, this is a global problem. And, And this is where I think we can start to think about how do you identify solutions to racism? People often say, well, I'm not the one uh, you know, discriminating against somebody. This is our institution's policy, right? But the point is not, it's not good enough to just step out and say, well, I'm not being racist. The important thing, uh, you know, at this point is to devise ways of being anti-racist, as Ibram Kendi, you know, has said in his work. It's very important to notice that we're all participating in the system and the structure. We benefit from it. And so, you know, if the structure has embedded racism, as Phyllis said, which it does, the government and all of us have to be much more intentional about combating racism because it's so pervasive. I think we have to all figure out a way to participate 
um, in this process by calling out racism when we see it. So when somebody, you know, uh, stands up and walks away from you uh, because you're sitting on the MTR or you see that happening to an ethnic minority in front of you, as it often happens to us, um, you know, you should say something or you should maybe be an example and go and sit down next to them. Right. Or we should learn to talk to our children about, um, you know, uh, busting some of the stereotypes and myths that are out there. We need better multimedia that our children are exposed to so that they can learn that, you know, cultures and celebrating them are not just about engaging in this sort of, you know, uh, appreciation of the exoticism of cultures, but it goes much deeper than that to really show solidarity and understand our shared humanity. Um, it's so difficult to enter, you know, um, for ethnic minorities, especially the South Asians and the Southeast Asians to enter mainstream kindergarten. And therefore, you know, um, without that Chinese ability, it's very difficult to enter a mainstream um, school, a mainstream primary school. And last year, statistics, statistics show that about 50% of the ethnic minority students are actually concentrated in just 29 primary and secondary schools. So with Without that, um, without that interaction, Chinese people and you know the the, the major community would just see um, South Asians and also ethnic minorities as as aliens, right? Because they've never lived with them, they've never studied with them, and racism is a learned behavior. Um, I mean, like little kids, if you give them really good civil civil education, I mean, they they don't they don't they don't despise each other, they don't discriminate. Absolutely. I think you made such an important point, Phyllis. You know, it's not what we necessarily teach them overtly, but it's also so much more of what they're just observing around them. So yeah. I, you're absolutely right. It's about getting them to engage with um, each other so that they can learn about friendships and how they're cultivated and how do you build trust. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, has the government actually made any real effort uh, to lift ethnic minority students out of their struggles? I have to say the Education Bureau has done a lot um, in terms of providing funding to kindergartens and to primary schools and secondary schools uh, with um, ethnic minority students or um, what they call non-Chinese speaking students. So the definition of non-Chinese speaking is Chinese is not the home language they speak. Um, but. The thing is um, the monitoring and um, how each school actually use, uses the money differently. And everyone runs on a school-based curriculum. And so there is no, there is no expectation for um, ethnic minorities to learn, uh, for example, in the Chinese subject where they should be at. Yeah, well, the reality is that ethnic minority children not only start school at a later point than our Chinese counterparts, but we also tend to drop out of school earlier. And there are many factors which contribute to this, including um, you know, uh, children needing to sort of graduate early or leave school in order to work to provide for the family, to contribute to the income. But also, as you said, there's no parental support at home that can help the child sort of see through the education trajectory. Um, I count myself as, you know, I mean, a lot of people write it off to luck, but I would have to say it's deliberate uh, hard, hard work. work. Yes. A great perseverance that goes into being one of the few that actually make it in the domains that we you know we end up in and if you look around there's really a handful of ethnic minorities finally starting to become more visible as role models or leaders of their particular industries or professions uh, and you know if hong kong were truly inclusive and if sort of the government's efforts in terms of inclusive education were hitting the mark this wouldn't be you know this uh, it wouldn't be this super dream for so many ethnic minority children 
who asked me who allowed you to be a professor or who allowed you to study law. These are the kind of questions that ethnic minority children ask me, especially girls. They're looking for permission. But education should not be about permissibility. Education should be something that everybody is guaranteed. And we are guaranteed it under our international human rights, under Hong Kong's law. And in theory, there's no, uh, you know, there's no law that precludes us from uh, having that access. But as uh, Phyllis said, it's the systemic structures and barriers that keep getting in the way. And, you know, being sort of now third generation and having my son who's undergone this entire process of trying to access the school education system, he's in a mainstream school and we're so fortunate. But I have to say it hasn't come with an over-the-top effort of tremendous hard work. And so to your point, Noreen, if parents don't have the time, the resources, and know-how, then you're destined to end up in one of those 29 schools that the majority of ethnic minority children end up going to if they're going to the public sector. But I find that now the Education Bureau is putting all the bucks into Chinese learning. What, what, what is missing is an inclusion policy. There has to be an inclusion policy and teachers have to know about, you know, um, have to be culturally sensitive and curriculum has to be culturally responsive. Um, students would tell us, you know, that when they, when they t uh, talk to teachers about, you know, some of their career planning, you know, the paths to take, should I take a science stream, what, let's, what, what subjects do I take in Form 4, they would say, oh, just choose on you know, all these applied learning because you're not going to go into university anyway. And it's like well, they don't want to choose for industry courses, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're already putting down the students based on the, the, the typical, you know, very negative stereotypes of ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. So um, teacher training, especially cultural sensitivity training, it's, it's very important so that teachers respect them as individuals, no matter what their skin color is. And, and also encourage them and give them a lot of support during education. Yeah. But uh, I think sorry, you know, was, this is also where children have a hard, uh, you know, they have a very hard time in schools. I mean, we know that in Hong Kong and every other context as well, schools have a bullying problem, which is on the rise, right. you know, and, and many children in Hong Kong have shared recently their experiences relating to sexism and racism in the school mm -hmm. context, notably in the ESF. Uh, you know, um, yes. petitions find out which highlighted these problems, which have been longstanding. And as a student who also once was, you know, at an ESF school in Hong Kong, it's sad to see that, you know, 30 plus years on, these problems are still out there. My own son, when he, you know, he, um, his classmates told him they don't want to hold his hand because his skin color is darker than theirs. And they were worried that somehow the color rubs off on you. And, you know, this is it when he was four. Oh, so I spoke to his class teacher about it. And his class teacher said to me, you know, she was, uh, she was great. She was a wonderful teacher. But I have to say their ability to handle uh, incidents, which um, are actually, you know, subtle forms of uh, racism, or even one could say overt, except that you know that a child isn't intentionally being racist. Um, you know, the, the teacher's competencies in this regard aren't uh, sort of well developed. And, and the teacher's advice for me was, oh, you should just tell your son, you know, to let it just roll off his back. I mean, kids make fun of my hair all the time. Mm -hmm, I just mm -hmm. I like my hair. And my response to her was, but miss, you can change your hairstyle if you want to. What can my son do about his skin color, right? Exactly. So surely there have better ways to respond. Uh, and I have yet to see, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how the ESF sort of um, grapples with the current um, allegations that are made against them. 
And that was Pooja Kapai, an associate professor at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law, along with Phyllis Cheung, the executive director of Hong Kong Unison, speaking on Monday's 123 show. We'll be bringing you more highlights on next week's Week on 3. Thank you very much for joining me. Have a great weekend. And that was the week on three with Norin Mir. Tune in again next week at the same time, 8.30 on Saturday for another episode of Week on Three. Operation Santa Claus 2020 will officially launch in early November, but one of our main supporters, the Hong Kong Golf Club, is going to get the ball rolling early. It'll be celebrating the reopening of the golf courses at Fan Ling, as well as National Day and the Mid-Autumn Festival, and raising funds for the cause by holding a special open day on Thursday, October the 1st. The entry fee is $500 per player, and all the proceeds will go to Operation Center. That's the annual charity campaign run by RTHK Radio 3 and the South China Morning Post. For more details and to register for the event, you can go to the club's website at hkgolfclub.org or follow the link on the Radio 3 homepage. Due to the volatile COVID-19 situation, the public should stay at home and avoid going out, in particular elderly persons, as they have higher risk of severe illness. Family and friends should help them with shopping and other daily needs. If elderly persons must go out, they need to wear a mask and wash hands frequently. Pay attention to the latest situation. See your doctor promptly if feeling unwell, even if the symptoms are mild. Let's fight the virus together. The weather. Today we have sunny intervals, occasional showers and a few thunderstorms. The maximum temperature today will be about 30 degrees Celsius. We have light winds as well. The outlook, occasional rain and a few thunderstorms in the next couple of days. And temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity at 82%.